0: All right, so now that, now that Dave stole half my introduction, um, thank, no, <laughs> we'll wrap this up. By the way, um, if you're having a little trouble getting your head around the time thing, I did, you know, I, I, I knew it, I came this morning knowing when it when the first service started. Old service time, I walked into the auditorium and I'm thinking, hey, anyway, so, just to keep your head in gear for where we're going, we're aiming to be out of here by 12.30, okay? Your kids aren't going to be out till 12.30 anyway, so sit back, relax. We will get there. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a tough talk? I was 15 years old. I'd been encouraged to try out for the senior basketball team. I was told that the new coach had a pattern of choosing 10th graders on the team that had high potential for development and that I should try. I wasn't all that confident but wanted to give it my best shot and I knew I'd have to be in top physical condition and the way I thought I could get in best physical condition so I could get a leg up on the other people trying out was to join the soccer team. I didn't like soccer at all, sorry Dave. But I wanted to be in top shape, so I joined the team, deciding that as soon as basketball tryouts started, I would quit the soccer team and have my leg up on the other competitors. I made the soccer team, and I quit the soccer team the week basketball tryouts started. The the soccer coach was not happy, but I'd actually factored that potentiality into my strategy. Uh, it, It was widely known in the school that the soccer coach, who was the old guard, And this new hotshot basketball coach did not see eye to eye on almost anything. I actually thought that perhaps quitting the soccer team would give me an advantage in the eyes of the basketball coach. Stupid teenage mind. Sorry, guys. (laughs) So the day tryouts started. I walked out of the dressing room, and before I even stepped on the court, the new basketball coach stepped in front of me. He looked at his clipboard, and he said, fair I said, yes, and he said, uh, I said, I probably said, yes, sir. And he said, is it true you quit the soccer team? I said, yes, but he didn't even let me finish. He said, how do I know that you won't do the same thing to me if you make this team? I told him, well, well I only joined the soccer team to get in shape for basketball. I don't even really like soccer. I really like basketball. He said, the only way I'll let you try out for this team is if you finish the season with the soccer team. If you're not going to do that, don't even bother stepping out of the court. You're wasting your time and my time and everybody else's time. I didn't realize that at the time, and I'm not even sure the coach had thought through the logic of it that thoroughly. It was more of an intuitive thing, I think, for him. But as I thought back to that conversation many times over the years, there were two underlying, overarching messages for me in that conversation. Number one... It was all about establishing, this was a DTR conversation, defining a relationship conversation. If I was going to be on there, there was a pecking order, and I knew I wasn't taught. (laughs) And number two, that conversation was about how my behavior, my attitudes, my choices, even as the youngest member, could affect the entire team. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a tough talk? how did it go? More importantly, how did you process it afterwards? You see, we tend to do two things. Number one, we shoot the messenger, right? We just say all kinds of reasons why they were wrong. And then we come up with reasons, oh, it's, it's because of how they came across. And we find things to criticize about them. Who were they to talk, Right? Or we go into this spiral of negative self-talk. I'm no good. I'm such a failure. Most likely it's actually a combination of the two of those, back and forth. Today we're going to process a central tough talk from Coach Jesus. We've been working our way through this gospel since January, as, as Dave said. And um, our Easter services focused from Mark's account on, on the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection, that it is failure undone. It is the failure of failure. His death was the undoing of our failure, and His resurrection was the undoing of the ultimate result of our failure, death. So failure no longer has to define us. And in this snappy, stripped-down, straightforward gospel, we've seen that Mark often says that Jesus did a lot of teaching. But except for chapter 4, where there's this series of parables centering around the seed and the soil parable, we're not told much about what he taught. As we come to chapter 8, which is a turning point in the chapter, as we saw three weeks ago, it pivots on this little time-out huddle in which, the, which his disciples interpret to be a strategy meeting, a political strategy meeting. Jesus says, who do people say I am? And they said to him, and, and, uh, and he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. He was right, but he had this totally skewed idea of what that meant, and Mark's account pivots on on this conversation, and Jesus now focuses on his journey to Jerusalem to be that Messiah, the Christ, Jerusalem and the cross. And on this journey, we're exposed to a bit more of Jesus' teaching, teaching not to the crowds, but to those who claim to know who he is and are saying, yes, we want to follow you. And what we see is this series of tough talks. For the next few weeks, we'll be processing some of those. Next week, chapter 10, marriage and divorce. Don't come if you don't want to hear what Jesus says. Don't come if you just want a subpar marriage. You see, people who say, you know, I think Jesus was a really good guy, really good teacher, positive, upbuilding teacher, you got to wonder whether they've read some of the teaching of Jesus. Oh, it results in a more positive life. It results in becoming a stronger, more effective, hold your head kind of person. But these tough teachings of Jesus are not chicken soup for the soul. His teaching is hard-hitting but at the same time life-giving. So today, Mark chapter 9 beginning at verse 30 to the end of the chapter, open your Bible. We're going to walk through uh, verses 30 to 50, if you have a, a smartphone, just download the app and uh, look at Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Before we dive in, just one more question. How many of us go into any new venture? Whether it's a, a marriage, new job, a promotion at your work, or even just a new week. How many of us go into that venture saying, you know what? I want this to be the most ineffective situation possible. I want to figure out the one thing that would make me most ineffective this week. You say that? My goal this week is to to increase divisiveness in my environment. Make it as unhappy a place as possible. We act like it, but we don't say it. This week, this job, this relationship, my goal is to, is to diminish my status, lose any respect that people might have for me. Now, sometimes we look around it and it almost seems as if that's some other people's goals. But but let's focus on ourselves. Is that the way we act? Let's flip it around. If you could discover one thing, one thing that would increase your effectiveness wherever you are in your job, in your marriage. Whatever environment you're in, increase your effectiveness, increase cohesiveness in the group, and elevate your status among people. One thing: Would you not at least try it? Let's find out. Mark left that place, or they left that place, Jesus and his disciples, Mark 9:30. What place? What place did they leave? Look back in the chapter and you realize they left that place, that place once again, of failure. Failure. Mark chapter 9 begins with the disciples failing in an assignment that Jesus had equipped them for and assigned them to do. To cast out a demon, to bring healing, inner healing. Dealing with the results of sin entering in the world and the power over us that the one who is the source of evil has. They failed. So obviously, they they need more teaching, equipping, coaching, right? That is what this tough talk is about. They left that place and passed through Galilee, passed through. No engaging of the crowd, no teaching and healing of the masses. Jesus is not on the campaign trail. My hunch is they even took back roads and back trails to get away from the crowds. Why? Why? Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And what is it he teaches them? He gives them the the consummate coaching talk for anyone who wants to be part of his movement, to be part of the kingdom that God is building. And what does this coaching conversation involve? How to be more effective at casting out demons? Well, it it does have implications for that, but not the kind of situation where he gives them some techniques. Does he give them some leadership principles they would need to know to take over his movement after he's gone? Absolutely, but not of the sort they think they need. Here's his teaching. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. If you are here several weeks ago, that may ring a bell. And I might remind you where we are in this journey of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. You see, this section in which most of Jesus' tough talks, hard teaching is is a is what what we call the other day act 2 in this gospel. Act 2 of 3 acts. Acts 1 act, act 1 chapters 1 to 8 basically middle of chapter 8. The question is who is Jesus? And through his miracles and through his wise teaching And through his confrontation with the authorities, he proves that he is the authority over everything. Act 2, after this conversation, who is the Christ? We move into the question, what is his mission? And what does it take to be part of his mission? Act chapter 3, which we processed last week, Easter, was the execution of his mission. And yes, execution is a pun. That's what it was. <laughs> but it was Jesus executing his mission. So, Act Two, the act we're in. There's three cycles, and this is this is the most tightly structured. If you're into literary analysis at all, you, you, you want to read this, and you want to download this um, uh, this chart tomorrow off the web, because it, it it's very there's three cycles, very parallel, three predictions. Of Jesus about the cross, very similar uh, in in content. There's a commitment to follow, and he says, "Whoever wishes, gives this one principle, and it's it's just basically reiteration of the principle he started with in chapter eight. You got to die. You got to lose your life. And he explains each time what it means, but it begins with this reminder of the gospel: the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. He must die and will rise again. That's the good news. A couple things we just need to see before we get to the principle. We need to remind ourselves that Jesus did not come to make us better and make life better. Jesus came to make us His. Have you allowed Him to do that? Until we see the beauty The glory and the power of that will not get it. Jesus' disciples did not get it. The other thing we need to see even as we go into this tough talk is Jesus does not lead into any tough talk by demanding from us, telling us how much we fail. He leads it by giving all of himself for us and to us. Until we see how comprehensive, how full, how all-encompassing that is, we will never get it. In chapter 10, as he reminds them of this again, he puts it this way, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. A ransom, a rescue from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of the evil one to the kingdom of God. It's not just that our failures are made up for, that we have been brought back to zero from this deficit and we can work towards making up for our past. No, we've been given through Jesus' death and His resurrection and His ascension to a position of authority over everything and the Spirit He sent to live in us. We have been given everything as Peter got it later on, as he writes in Second chapter, or 2 Peter Chapter 1. We have been given everything we need for life and godliness for fulfilling the tough talks that Jesus is giving. Do you know that? Do you know that in here? Not just in here. So before this tough talk, he gives them the good news, which at at the time they don't get. They don't see it as good news at all. As a matter of fact, it says they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So isn't that what we tend to do with uncomfortable truth? Let's just ignore it. Let's just avoid it. There's plenty of positive stuff to talk about, right? What we don't know won't hurt us. If I don't know it, I can't be accountable for it. Right? Isn't that how we live? Why? Because no matter what we say, we're afraid of it. No matter how much we sing, no longer a slave to fear, we don't even recognize the places where our fear hits us. Sometimes when someone dares to name it and say, what are you afraid of? We react and say, I'm not afraid of anything. It, it just it, it doesn't make sense. I, I don't understand it. No, no, no. Let's name it. We're afraid of it. What is it we're afraid of? Well, I'll tell you one of the things the disciples were afraid of. They're, they're afraid that their vision of, of what Jesus is to be for them is not Jesus' vision of what he will be for them. I, I'd love to know what the rest of that day trip was like. Sort of probably a lot of awkward silence. Jesus probably walking alone a bit, quite a bit of the time, and they're behind him, and we'll see why in a minute or two here. Those who were with Jesus probably, you know, talking about the weather, nice, oh, isn't it beautiful out today, nice scenery, what a great walk, surface stuff. But when they settle into where they're going for the night, Jesus puts it on the table. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, hey, when you were, see, once a, once a day, once a day it happens. There we go. When we were walking back there, what were we arguing about? Oops. (laughs) We thought we were far enough back that he didn't notice it. But they kept quiet because they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Do you see how clueless these guys are? Jesus has said he's going to die for them, for the world. And he's called them to be leaders of his movement. Think about it. That statement by Jesus, which is the second time now he has explicitly said the very same words while they're alone with him, that should have raised a ton of questions, right? Like, you've said that twice now. Can you flesh that out? Now, We've been, we've been talking about that die thing. Now, that, that's obviously a word picture, a metaphor, but, but you sound so literal when you say it. Can you, can you tell us what you mean? When you called us, you said, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. How, if, if you're going to die and be gone, how does that fit with what we signed up for? Where does that leave us, and how in the world can we follow you when you're gone? Those were the real questions. But their only question was, when he's gone, who's going to be at the point lead? Who's going to be the lead? Who's going to be at the top? And the competition begins. The next cycle of this very same conversation in chapter 10, what happens? Two brothers there, James and John. They've got it figured out. We're going we're gonna to do some, we're going to get ahead of this thing. We're going to talk to Jesus, and they do. So in your glory, in the kingdom that you're coming to set out, can, can James sit on one side and me sit on the other side in your glory? So, verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve. You know what that means? That means that Jesus is now assuming the posture of an authoritative teacher, sitting down. If this was a boss's office, he'd be sitting behind his desk. If there's an auditorium, he'd come to the pulpit. This is no longer just some suggestions, some ideas. This is is core line drawing truth. There's only one thing we need to see this morning, and it's the one thing Jesus wanted to get them here. Whoever wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. You want to be great? And we need to see something here. Jesus is not putting down the desire to be great. He's affirming the desire to be great. This is not anything like, well, like, like pantheism where it, appears that what, you know, our desire should be to melt into nothingness. No, no, no. And this is not a threat. This is not the threat of the elementary school teacher who says, if you don't stop fighting to be first, I'm going to put you at the back of the line. No. Our problem is not our desire for great. Our problem is our definition of great. It's our distorted vision of great. Go for greatness, says Jesus, but if you really want greatness, in the eyes of the one who defines greatness, who lives greatness in your presence, become the greatest servant. Let others push you forward. Let God open doors for position. If you want to be great in God's eyes and in people's eyes, have a picture in your mind of just being the most servant-minded, servant-hearted, servant-postured person in the room. As, as you go through the New Testament, reading through this servant lens, you'll see two qualities that emerge as, as great values. Number one, humility. I, I, I'm trying to more and more ask myself a question as I enter in situations. What would humility look like in this situation? What would happen if we all asked that question? And number two, quality, submission. The the Greek word for submission literally means placing myself under. By the way, when you're assessing whether you want to be part of an environment where there's a leader, when you're part of selecting leaders, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a board member, whether it's picking somebody at work to to work under, I want to give you a, a tip. Never place yourself under a leader who himself or herself does not demonstrate submission to their leader. Ask yourself, who's their leader and are they submitting well to their leader? Their human leader. You see, in a religious environment, be careful about the person who says or even comes across as if, no, I don't answer to any human, I answer to God alone. Baloney. It doesn't work in a team environment. So let's just think about your journey for for the last few weeks, some of the ways the environment's you've been part of, have frustrated you, uh, failed you possibly, haven't delivered for you. Let's assume for a moment that you have some legitimate beef. But let's also ask the question, what would Jesus say if he sat me down for a coaching conversation? Would he say, you know, I know you desire to be great, But do you need to redefine your understanding of what it means to be great? You seem to be thinking in terms of attention. You weren't noticed by someone. Position or status, you did not get the promotion. In what way would Jesus say, you know, here's your problem. I want greatness for you, but can you see how I'm giving you an opportunity to be great by being a servant? That's what get my attention. In my short stint of working as a project manager in a government bureaucracy uh, several years ago, I was was leading people, but I wasn't really their manager. And, And I got to hear some of the frustrations of people who knew that in their operational job they were being bypassed for a promotion. They were not getting the advancement that they knew they deserved. They'd done their time. I said, you know, I, I know this is a union environment, and I, and I know that you think you've done your time, but, but I also know a way in which you can get a leg up and guarantee you'll get the promotion you're looking for. It's, it's, it's not necessarily a quick fix to the next situation, but in the long run, it's going to get you where you want to go. They listen, and here's what I said. If you want to move up the ladder, you have to see And take advantage of opportunities to do three things. Just three things. Easy to remember. Number one, find opportunities to do a little bit of the job of the person below you. Not to take over from them, but just to come alongside and help them. Number two. Find opportunities to do just a little bit of the job of the person above you, your boss. Not to prove you can do it, just to come alongside them and help them where you see they're struggling. And number three, look for and find opportunities to do a little bit of the job of the person beside you, your peer. Not to prove you're better than them just to help them to move the project forward or to do something for them in their operational job so they can do their project work. Yeah, of course, it was a bit self-serving on my part. Do you know how many blank stares I got? Why? Well, I I wouldn't want to be a brown noser. (laughs) Well, how about just being a servant then? That would go against the union rules. Well, then find a way to do it without going against the union rules. Only one person gave me the real reason they wouldn't do it. I'm nobody's slave. That's the problem. I didn't say it, but from what I saw, that was probably the reason she'd been bypassed a number of times. Folks, there, here is the main coaching point we need to grasp serving rules. Really serving is really leading because, I don't know if you've seen it, you may have said it, but it's true. Servants run the world. They do. If you want to be great, just be a great servant. You see, just seeing and truly being a servant increases your effectiveness It elevates your status with people and it impacts your environment in a positive way. And if your desire is to make Jesus shine, to show Jesus' love, servanthood is the only way. Folks, this is not just religious mumbo-jumbo. This is the way life works. To live in any bigger vision means I need to give up my vision. No matter how much our culture says that somehow we need to all live that way. We'll, 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 it, you know, if we just live for our vision, it'll be better for everybody. No, no. It doesn't work that way in a marriage. When LaDonna and I were dating, well-meaning friends said to us, you guys are so different, it's not going to work. But it's worked. And we, we love to think that we got a kind of great teamwork together. But it's worked for two reasons. Number one, before we ever got married, we gave ourselves to a dream that was outside of either of us. We gave ourselves to God wholeheartedly with all of our hearts. That reduces quite a bit of the competition with each other. But number two, we have always, through every single one of the challenges we've faced, we have always come from the perspective, or, well, for my, I'll speak for myself. Sometimes we've come to the perspective after a while that our conflicts and our disagreements have their roots in, well, as James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from the selfish desires that battle within you? You know whether you're a servant or not by how you act when you're treated like one. Bottom line. And we've asked ourselves the question, sometimes after some conflict and whatever, what, what might it look like to be, submit in this situation to serve. You know, this stuff doesn't sell, but it works. I know it doesn't sell, even for those who claim to follow Jesus, because several years ago, somebody gave me a book called Good to Great in God's Eyes. The title was obviously a takeoff on a popular business leadership book at the time, and the person who wrote it was becoming a little more well-known in the Christian community as a writer, and so I opened up the book, and there wasn't one chapter, not one chapter, not one paragraph that I could find on the one thing that says we're great in God's eyes. Servanthood. It talked about reading great books, about dreaming great dreams, about hanging around great people. Those are all good things to do. About taking great risks. Okay. And then it talked about Making great sacrifices. And I thought, okay, maybe that book talks about what Jesus said. Not a word. And I, as I flipped through that chapter again this week, I realized that being a servant and making great sacrifices, yeah, a servant makes great sacrifices, but just because you sacrifice doesn't mean you're a servant. You can do everything that guy said in his book about sacrifice and not have a servant heart. Folks, if you want to move from good to great in all in God's eyes, all you have to do is be a servant. Paul got it. Paul, the apostle of freedom. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, in Galatians 5, 13. In verse 1, he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, but, but, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your flesh, but through love serve one another. You know how free you are by how free you are to serve. Back to Mark chapter 9. The rest of the passage, although it may seem like it's sort of random stuff put together, just thrown in there, it actually fleshes out this idea of servanthood by giving us some concrete, specific ways we can make that happen. Here, here's what I think ties it all together. See, sometimes to avoid dealing with our obvious issues, we, we, don't, just, we don't just not say what we're afraid of. We, we flip that to the positive and we say, oh, God doesn't look on outward things. He looks at the heart. God, God measures the heart. It's the heart that counts. Oh, yes, that's true. <laughs> But what is it What God measures when he measures the heart? What are some of the measures of a servant heart? That's where Jesus moves to. Verse 36, to make his point real, Jesus took a little child in his arms, and he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. You know, we, we do all kinds of things with this child word picture, and And actually on several different occasions when Jesus uses children to make a point, he makes some subtly different points. But what's his point here? His point here is not that we should make children's ministry a priority because Jesus did. Jesus is not ministering to a child. He is using a child to make a point. What's the point? His point here is not that we should become like children. Although he does make that point elsewhere. That's not the point here. And... If you read down to verse 42, you're going to see that Jesus isn't even talking about children at all. Do you know how we know that? He says, verse 42, one of these little ones, anyone who believes in me, he's not saying that all children believe in him. He's saying that this child represents a certain kind of person who believes in him. What kind of person? We've got to understand how children were viewed in Jesus' day. Children, were people with no status. They were actually nobodies, basically. As a matter of fact, you were not even an heir of an estate as a child. A child had no power and no way to give you any power. This wasn't about, oh, children make me feel so good. Uh Uh-uh. A child had no status. A child had very few rights. Nobody noticed you if you gave a child attention. A child is the person that you can get nothing from in return if you give them attention. Nobody's going to say, oh, cool. By the way, do you know what language Jesus is using as he's talking to his disciples? It's, it's probably Aramaic. And what language is Mark writing this gospel in? It's Greek. In both Aramaic and Greek, the word child can also mean servant. So, servant heart measure number one. Do you make it a priority to give attention to those from whom you will get nothing in return? Here's what Jesus is saying. Do you want to be significant in my kingdom? Then give attention to those people who are insignificant. not people from whom you can get something. God measures my significance by the attention I give to those who are insignificant. Let's be honest, folks. Most of us came in these doors this morning and will leave these doors today measuring how important we might be by whether somebody that we think is important noticed us and talked to us. Right? Right? Do you want to be part of creating a healthy environment, a dynamic environment where people want to be and can meet Jesus? You can do it. Stop looking at who is not giving you attention and start looking for someone who needs your attention. It's as simple and as powerful as that. Stop focusing on ways that somebody isn't giving you attention, some asking you to do something important. Start looking for things that little things you can do to just help solve a problem that you see. If you don't like that, don't argue with me. Take it up with Jesus. That's what he's saying. In marriage, it's not why didn't she do this? It's wow, how could I help her do that? Mark goes on to talk about another measure of servant-heartedness that gets even closer to home for some of us. Rather fascinating because it, it seems like John is getting uncomfortable with the direction of this conversation. He's looking for a way to change the topic. Good strategy. Jesus has talked about serving people in his name. John thinks, oh, okay, I can do this. And he tries to get Jesus to give them a compliment to point out something they did right. "Uh, Teacher, speaking of in your name, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. It's like, we've done something good, didn't we? But for Jesus, it's like, oh, John, you just still aren't getting it, are you? Wrong pivot, John. (laughs) You just got yourself into more trouble. Do not stop him, Jesus says. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. This guy, the disciples set straight, that he put, in, put in, there, in his place? What is it that he has done? What is it he has done successfully? Cast out a demon? In Jesus' name, the very thing the disciples had failed at in the beginning of this chapter. What's going on here that Jesus exposes? We have to see one more word because we have to see what it is exactly that the disciples made the issue. We told him to stop because he's not one of us. Uh, There are several translations, the New English Translation, the English Standard Version, which actually translates this a little more literally and a little more accurately. It says, because he was not following us Hold it John was that just a slip of the tongue or do you not realize what you're exposing about your heart here For Jesus John's statement is part of this who is the greatest discussion You see in John's mind here's the paradigm You've called us to be your leaders And they are not following us, right? Can you see what Jesus is saying? He's exposing their hearts. The the real issue is jealousy of someone else's success. Their picture was, yes, we failed. But you have called us to be the ones who lead. We are close to you, so they must be doing something wrong. They turned their failure into doing the right thing. Have you, ever noticed, <laughs> have you ever noticed how it's often those who are not effective tend to be the most confident about what is effective? That's the disciples. Every single movement of Jesus is a reaction to something as much of it as it is a correction, correction of something. And sometimes it's the reaction part that gets us. And the time it gets us the most is when we develop this attitude, oh, they're only succeeding because they're compromising. Be careful, really careful. These disciples don't realize they're criticizing this man in the same way the Pharisees. Check out chapter 3, verse 22 and following. The Pharisees criticized Jesus following in the same trap. Criticism and is often an outward indication of an inward jealousy. Which, which is a contraindication, by the way, of a servant's heart. You see, the disciples act like and actually think they are protecting Jesus. Jesus says, you're not protecting me, you're protecting yourselves, your turf. You want to show and develop a servant's heart? Look for something to affirm. Find something in somebody's success you can be joyful about. If I can't do that, I do not have a servant's heart, no matter how loudly I declare it to be so. Moving on to the last section here. Jesus takes the discussion to a whole another level, a deeper level, in this context of either becoming servant-hearted Or hard harder, Jesus talks about how significant our negative attitude a negative spirit, a critical spirit is, how much all of our behavior affects the environment around us and impacts the course of other people's lives. And Jesus takes that seriously. If anyone causes these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better if, for them, if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If you, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is never quenched. So Jesus, how do you really feel about this? Right? Just very briefly, his point is this. You gotta take very, very seriously the impact you have on your environment and determine what it is you need to give up in order to grow up as a servant. If you find yourself in a critical space, negativity coming out more than it maybe should, you may not even realizing, but you are influencing someone else in a way that could even harm their relationship to God, and Jesus takes that seriously. It's our self-stuff, the things that we want to define us that make us look good, that make us feel good. It's our self-stuff that distracts us and destroys us. Folks in this room today, because we're no better than Peter, James, and John, in this room today, there's some of us that need to give something up in order to grow up as a servant. By God's design, worship. Worship is all about declaring God as the center, me out of the center, and acknowledging ways that we have fallen short and once again giving ourselves to servant-heartedness. The reason I know that that's what Jesus is talking about is because that's where he goes in this passage. There's, there's, uh, there's something else about this passage that makes us a little uncomfortable. Who is it to whom Jesus talks about hell? It's to those who claim to be in with him, not those who are on the outs with him. Now, that's scary. We won't dive into that one, but, uh, but the, 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 there's, a, there's one little picture, that, the metaphor that we're going to look at really quickly. The chapter ends by picking up on the fire theme. talks about hell, and then he go, takes the direction of fire a little differently with a, with a word picture that offers us a choice. There's fire and there's salt. Read this and see what he's saying. Everyone will be salted with fire. You know what was salted with fire? sacrifices. Now, look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and see if you can't fit this into the word picture there. Everyone will be salted with the fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself, and be at peace with one another. Two things we need to see here. Number one, he ends the chapter the way he began this whole section. What were they doing at the beginning? They were fighting with each other. And Jesus is saying, if you're servants, you're going to end up being at peace with each other. Number two, it's all about worship. In what way? You see, we've got to understand the role of salt here. The fire was about worship, but what about salt? The people he was talking to knew exactly what he was talking about. It was all about a practice they were very familiar with, offering sacrifices in worship at the temple. When a sacrifice was offered, it was burned on an altar, and salt was thrown onto it, onto the sacrifice and onto the fire. Why? Salt Was a purifying symbol because it was a purifying agent. When I was a little kid, playing out in the yard, got a cut or scratch, didn't say anything about it. That evening, it'd be festering a little bit already. What did my mom do? She put some hot water in a little bowl, put some salt in it, and said, Hold your finger in there for 10 minutes. Why? Salt is a purifying agent. I still do that. Salt cleans, it purifies. I think the point that Jesus is making here is that we get to choose our fire. We get to choose the fire. It's either a fire that's going to be judgment someday or it's a fire today that purifies. We get to allow which one it's going to be. We get to choose which one it's going to be. Everyone goes through fire testing. And the test always is, am I going to make myself the center? Or for Jesus' sake, will I give up myself? Let this go. Let him decide. Let him be honored as I take the posture Of a servant. If that's what I choose, I am making the choice to allow this tough situation to make my heart purer, more of a servant. If I choose willful stubbornness, needing to have my own way, there will come a time when God is going to put the fires of judgment in some way on me. So, what's your fire? What's your fire? Are you allowing your situation to be a purifying fire? There's no reason we have to choose judging fire because Jesus has already been judged for us and he invites me to line up behind him under